Hey, everybody, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. It was almost two years ago that the massive Tohoku earthquake and tsunami hit the northeast coast of Japan. The actual date was March 11th, 2011. And in the months that followed, the writer Gretel Ehrlich made a series of trips to the disaster zone for reasons she says she still doesn't fully understand. I guess you could just say that she wanted to see for herself what happened and to meet some of the people it happened to. But also, as a writer, Gretel has often been drawn to those places where human and natural forces meet and sometimes collide. And what more dramatic example of that than a moving mountain of water rising from the sea and washing away so many people and so much of the world they knew in just a few short hours. In her treks up and down the Tohoku coast, Gretel thought a lot about that wave and what it means, and she's collected her thoughts in a new book, It's called Facing the Wave, A Journey in the Wake of the Tsunami. It's a meditation on life and death, on permanence and transience, the earth and our place on it. And uh, if you're not familiar with Gretel Ehrlich, just a little background here on her work. She is an award-winning environmental and nature writer, a poet, and sometime novelist. She first came to widespread attention for her essays about life in the ranch lands of Wyoming. Many of those essays were collected in books, like The Solace of Open Spaces and Islands, the Universe Home. And then in 1991, while walking near her ranch, she was struck and nearly killed by lightning. It took her years to recover, and she recounted that experience in her memoir, A Match to the Heart. And she's written another series of books about her travels in polar regions and the impacts of global warming. Those titles include This Cold Heaven and The Future of Ice. Well, today we're going to hear a conversation I had with Gretel Ehrlich about her new book, Facing the Wave, A Journey in the Wake of the Tsunami. Stay tuned. Where were you when you got the news uh, on March 11th, 2011, of the earthquake and then the tsunami in Japan? I was on an island in the Chesapeake Bay listening to NPR (laughs) news early in the morning. Did you think at that point, I want to go there? Yes. Why? Instantly. Why? I don't know. I, You know, I've been to Japan many times. I first went in 1968. I have one of these inexplicable affinities with Japan that make no sense. I, I just feel oddly at home in a place that is clearly not my home or my culture. And I'd been up that coast before, and I just felt sort of devastated by the thought that this beautiful coast, which is just like the Big Sur coast, except that it has little fishing villages in all the coves, that 375 miles roughly was erased. And then, of course, the meltdowns. uh, it, Mm. It grew into a horrible, triple disaster nightmare. So you'd been to the Tohoku coast, the exact place where the tsunami hit. Yes. So you had memories of what it looked like before. Were you then, after you heard the news on NPR, did you did you see those images uh, that filtered out over the next, you know, 24 hours of the tsunami devastation? Absolutely, yeah. Yes. I'm curious. You, you wanted to go uh, as soon as you could. That's That's what you wrote in the book. Did you think you could help? Not really. I just thought I could listen to stories. 
I wasn't sure what was going to happen when I got there. I mean, if I found that nobody wanted to talk to me, I would have just turned around and gone home and said, okay, well, I don't belong there. But it was quite the opposite. We we could barely shut people up. I mean, which is sort of unusual in Japan, although rural people are a lot more, you know, genki, as they say. Which means? The, you know, sort of energetic and energetic. vivacious uh-huh. and outgoing. Uh-huh. But um, people still needed to tell what happened to them. You know, when when strange and horrible and surreal and wild things happen, you need to tell that story. Do you think they might have been even more willing to tell an outsider in some ways? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I, I had two sets of um, translators, but the second set, uh, it was a, a 26-year-old woman who was half New Zealander, so I knew she would have a sense of humor, and half Japanese. And um, our great long hair hippie Japanese driver who we got just at the last minute. So the, it was really the three of us going up to people, and they couldn't quite figure out who we were because I'm an American. She It was hard to tell whether she was Japanese or or not, and he was just this long hair. A worker who lived in Tohoku was raised there, so he had the right dialect. And um, they thanked us over and over for coming and talking to them. I mean, I, I went back and talked to the same people over a period of um, for the the three times I went, I spent a total of three months there. And any you know anywhere, if you go back a second time and a third time and a fourth time, they know that you're genuine, that you care, that you're not just you know coming to get some little bit and disappear. Mm. Yeah, you made three visits, so it was three months non consecutively. Yes, June, June September, September, and December. December. Did you feel guilty? No. Uh, I only ask because, you know, survivors feel guilty. I would think that, in a way, anybody visiting that site would feel like how lucky they were and how unlucky these people were. Um, I, I didn't really go there in my thinking. You know, there were moments, I mean, maybe guilt is throwing me off. There were moments when I thought that it might have been a betrayal to my own life and my partner to have exposed myself to radiation in that way and maybe um, compromising my health and our happiness together. Mm. That was one thought. The Mm. second thought was, is it a betrayal, um, therefore, to stay? Um, And is it a betrayal to come here and then leave at all, ever? Betrayal to all the people who have told me their stories, who were so generous and and are in such a horrible situation in their life. <clears throat> so you're you're always feeling this complex of things, but I I I don't quite see it as guilt. It's more um, you don't want to let anybody down. So you you carry away with you all the experiences that have been reported to you. You can only put some of them in the book, right? Right. So that must be a little bit conflicted too, choosing what to say, (laughs) whose story to tell. 
I find it, especially when I'm going around now giving readings, because what I really want to do is get everyone to just sit down around a fire on the beach and say, okay, this is really what happened, and these are all the people I met, and these are all the things that I saw and experienced. Because it's, I mean, it's a huge thing in itself, and it also seems to um, represent a kind of time that the whole world is entering because of climate change. You know, we're experiencing violent weather and um, hurricanes and Although this was not anthropogenic, it was still a disaster, and and so you you know I I feel as if people have to hear about how easily it is to have your lives erased and your towns, and and how we have to hone our survival instincts and learn to live cooperatively and. Hmm. hmm. You and I talked years ago about your book, The Future of Ice, which is about a slow motion disaster, right? Global warming. Yeah. Maybe not as slow it's as we'd like. It's not so slow anymore. But, but you can't see it progress from day to day, but you can see the evidence of glaciers receding or ice mm -hmm. caps disappearing over the course of years. And you visited some of these places at both ends of the earth. Right. Um, what is it with you and disasters? <laughs> <laughs> it's not about disaster. No, I'm just so horrified that that you know we've come to this point in human history that we're ruining our nest, mm. and um, mm. I, I don't like disasters particularly. Mm. I would rather. No, no, I, I wasn't <laughs> even implying that. I'm not no. a. I'm not a storm chaser. <laughs> yeah, somebody disaster asked me, tourism. Oh, did you go to Indonesia? The one in Indonesia? No, I'm not chasing tsunamis really. <laughs> I sense, though, in this book, which is, you know, like a lot of your writing, it's both external observation and a lot of internal observation as well. It feels diaristic. It's from one day to the next. It's what's happening to you internally and externally. There was something pulling you there. And this idea of facing the wave. The wave comes to mean a number of things. Yes. Yeah. Uh, not just a big slice of ocean. No. No, the wave is facing death, facing life, facing living, and facing dying, and facing uncertainty. It's part of Buddhist practice. It's part of what's happening in the world in terms of climate change. And it's part of just existence. Uh, it's, you know, kind of holds all the fundamental questions and fears and hopes we all have. You know, in uh, preparation for this interview, I looked at some of those videos that I hadn't seen in yeah. quite a while. It's been two years since the tsunami. And I remembered the experience, and I, I hope this doesn't sound heartless, but of being appalled not just at all the death and destruction that must have been happening, but all the crap that we humans litter essentially in the path of nature, and that when disasters occurred, you know, it was turned into garbage, massive amounts of garbage. And I've never seen so much of human industry, so much of human, you know, habitation, all of our stuff churned instantly into, you know, contamination, into garbage and stuff that, that floats out to sea, that's left in the ground. 
I'm not trying to minimize the human disaster, but there's also this material disaster. What's your feeling about that? Well, it, it was astonishing to see um, the transformation of a good-sized town into sort of instant rubble. I mean, there was something, it, you know, it's sort of like an art form, like an installation of something. You know, there were moments when uh, Masumi, my translator from Sendai, and I, we had just have to stop and and laugh. Mm. We just laugh and laugh and laugh. Like, we cannot believe what we're seeing. The first town we went to, um, Minimas Sanriku, the rubble was, you know, probably two stories high on either side of the street. And it, it's as if everything had been put in a blender but not moved, except for fishing boats were on top of hospitals. But, but you know, the, the buildings and things have been just pulverized into this illegible rubble but kind of left in place. It was just very strange. The other really strange thing that I kept seeing everywhere, and I, I met other people who were commenting on it, was all the human-made made things were turned into garbage. But you would see these rose bushes and plants completely still blooming, and the wave had gone over them. How does that happen? And you know, the, the, the wise old Japanese people would say, ah, the plants know how to survive that humans don't. What does it make you think about our stuff, you know, the um, product of all of our labor, you know, buildings, cars, technology, all these possessions that can be instantly turned into a trash heap? Well, those of us who have lived in tents for long periods of time That's and true. You're, lived out on the ice, yeah. you know, you know how little you can do with and survive. I don't have a... Um, especially in Japan, because they live pretty simply. What what I saw most of was um, pieces of their lives that, you know, fishing boats and houses. And it wasn't sort of ostentatious wealth that you could mm, <laughs> sort no. of laugh at. Mm. But you see what, um, what kind of uh, impact we have on the planet. And how badly we're coping with being on the planet. And, you know, I think maybe this is an opportunity for the people there to rethink how to live. I mean, they live in, you know, not a bad way compared to a lot of places in the world. Um, but I think as they rebuild, first of all, they'll rebuild on higher ground because the government's not allowing to, them to rebuild where the tsunami came. But also, hopefully, you know, sustainably incorporate more gardens into, you know, right into their courtyards and, you know, to live with even less. You met people who really lost everything. And we use that term sometimes a little loosely, but people who'd lost their entire family, uh, people who'd lost their home, but they also lost their entire village. They'd lost the only place they really knew. Yeah. And it's just gone. So there's no reference points. There's, you know, a few Shinto shrines up on top of a hill, maybe one or two houses. That's it. Nothing else. I mean, I went with people who were trying to figure out where their houses had been and still couldn't quite figure it out. 
The map was wiped clean. Yeah. There were two um, pilots in training out of Sendai Airport when the earthquake and tsunami happened. I guess when the tsunami happened. They were over by Akita on the other side of Japan. And when they came back and called ground control, ground control said, you must not land here. The Sendai Airport exists no more. You can imagine. Of course, they didn't feel it or they didn't even see the wave. You know, they were kind of, what is going on? And they look, you know, so they flew up the coast and nothing there. You know, there's that horrifying footage uh, taken from, I think, a police helicopter or a news helicopter that shows this brown, you know, I don't want to call it a wave. just this kind of evil sludge, you know, crossing the landscape through this, these farmlands and destroying everything. That was on the Sendai plane, yeah, where... Many of the people I met had lost everything, yeah. And and imagine what it would be like to be the pilot who was safe and sound and could yeah. observe all this. Yes. Did you talk I, to any of them? I talked to him. Oh, you did? I was trying to get him to take me for a ride, and he was just, um, he was not right. <laughs> he oh. was not doing well. He didn't want to take me. He and and my translator didn't want to go with me. And, uh, okay, okay, uh, forget it. Forget I asked. Yeah, it's a delicate thing you were doing. I mean, I guess positive in the sense that people really wanted to unburden themselves to some extent, and you were a great listener and conveying these stories to us. But on the other hand, you know, some of those questions might stir things up, right? Well, just that. I mean, I in the end, I didn't really talk to people who had lost their children, their wives or their husbands and their parents and their boat and their house. And I mean, you know, the deep grief of, especially the ones who had lost children. I, you know, I thought I would talk to them. I was sort of at this country temple where uh, I knew the abbot and the the, uh, nun who was there. Buddhist temple. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and I, you know, we were sitting there, Fukan-san and I were sitting there drinking tea in the temple, and people were coming in, people who had lost children, because a whole elementary school down the road from this little temple had been wiped out. They built this school on a floodplain behind a levee, with a then a hill going straight up behind it. I was so furious to think that they had thought that they would be safe from any, I mean, in any situation. I mean, you know, levees can break. They didn't know the tsunami wave would intrude six miles up the river. Um, But anyway, you know, 75 children were swept away. 10 of 11 teachers were swept away. The one teacher that survived because she disobeyed the rules and climbed up the the uh, steep hill behind took some the children that she could get to go with her. She she committed suicide later. Mm. Just couldn't mm. couldn't handle it. Mm. But what I was going to say was just that um, I when I saw these people coming in the temple, you know, just seeing them filing in, they were bringing pictures of their children and bringing flowers. It was a weekend, you know, and it, it was already three months on and. Um, so it was nor- it was normal for them to do that on the weekends, and I just thought, what would the conversation be? What what would I ask them, and why? And what would they say? That, in a way, just observing their presence there, which was had become a kind of ritual, just seemed enough. It said everything. 
you did talk to a lot of people and you tell a lot of stories. Um, one is by someone who you call Kikuchi-san. Yeah. The swimmer. Mm-hmm. Want to give us the brief version of his story? Yeah, he was a fisherman um, in his 40s, uh, fished with his father. When the earthquake happened, of course, they all knew there would be a tsunami. It was a big 9.03 earthquake. And he was rushing to the family house to, to rescue his parents and take them up on the hill. But then he, on the way there, he saw his father on a bicycle headed for the harbor. So he turned around um, to join his father, maybe get on the boat and drive the boat out. Um, over the wave, but they didn't make it in time. His father um, clung on to a steel ladder, and as the wave came, I mean, his father knew he couldn't make it, probably, and he didn't want his son to try to save him and therefore drown while saving him, so he just refused to move and sort of motioned to his son to jump off the seawall and go with the wave, which Kikuchi-san did. So it was that unbelievable moment where you leave your father knowing that he'll die. That takes a lot of courage. But you know there was some communication where he he knew that was the intention, and so he did it. So it was this sort of that strange thing where is it your duty to save your parent or is it your duty to obey your parent and to leave them? And I think it, you know, and I think it was the right thing. It was what his father wanted, so he did that. He was in the water for five hours. So these waves, you know, came in. I mean, I say one wave, but in a way it was the the same wave going back and forth. It was maybe 65 feet high, a little Bigger in that location. Than, than Mavericks out here in Santa Cruz. Depending <laughs> <laughs> on the day. Dream yeah. on, surfers. <laughs> but it was, um, you know, it would come in and then it would pull out. So he was just taken in and out by this water, which was full of broken up houses, fishing boats, dead bodies, you know, everything. You know, the contents of the town were now in the water. And he was drifting around in it. He was flotsam. Yeah. And I mean, how he survived, I don't know. He got pretty banged up. but And at one moment, he finally, um, after being dragged back and forth and dra- back and forth, he saw a log and he climbed on it. And it was at a moment sort of slack tide where it was very quiet water. And he um, looked around and realized that everything was gone, and except for this one city building. And that's where they finally rescued him. They pulled him up. It was at, the water was at the level of the third floor. Someone reached out and pulled him in. You know, when someone beats the odds and survives something like that in the U.S., we talk about those people as though they must be special. They must have done something special. They might, maybe that person might thank God for singling them out. You know, I, I don't hear anybody in your book anointing themselves that way. No. No, they didn't at all. (laughs) No, not at all. He just, um, you know, he was very matter-of-fact, very practical about it. The second time I saw him, he was pretty excited because the government was helping fishermen buy boats, use boats, most of which had been damaged somehow, but 
or just needed fixing up, you know, brought up from the south. But he was getting a boat, and he was, you know, going to head out and fish. Mm. And, um, yeah, no sentimentality and no kind of self-referential anything. But, you know, you have to realize that these towns have had many tsunamis. And a lot of the people I talked to said, oh, yeah, my my grandmother swam in the 1933 tsunami and survived. You know, she got knocked off and she survived. You know, so they all had stories. But never anything like this. Not like Kikuchi-san. That, right. that was really well, no, nev- nev- mean Oh, not as big a tsunami. Not as big a tsunami. No, no, this was the biggest yeah. wave. I mean, nothing in... And how long has been have they experienced like this uh, that swept all the villages away, all the seacoast towns? Yeah, no, it, n- nothing. Mm. They had I the seawalls, of course. Possibly, you know, a long, long time ago before there were towns. Right, you know? and but the seawalls were just pathetic. I mean, people were. But they were laughing. based. But they were based on their previous experience exactly. of tsunamis, yeah. which was no guide to the next big one. Yeah. Now you spent. Weeks, was it, in June of 2011, uh, three months after the... I spent a month a in month. June, a month in September, and a month in December. Right. And this, the first visit in June, three months after the uh, Tohoku quake and tsunami in Japan. Uh, and at some point you write, what feels like a mask drops off, not the face masks we've been wearing to protect ourselves from toxic dust or the elegant ones I once watched being carved for the No Theater 30 years ago, but the hardened exterior we present to the world, made with a rough skin. Masks slides, sticks slides again. I cry for only the second time since coming here. Tears roll and the whole carapace crumbles. So you weren't doing a lot of crying. No. How come? It was sort of as if we were in the... Um, in the swim of things, so to speak. We were on the charnel ground, and um, I don't think you cry there, you know, because you were in it. And there was an enormous, especially in June, enormous sense of survivor euphoria, which is when I'm not talking about, you know, partying, I'm talking about this wild energy that was seemed to be rising up out of these thick coins of pain, the pain of loss. But in but but to to find out that you're still breathing, you're still standing, you're still able to do things was a huge energy that overtook everybody. Everybody we saw. And um, and so we were kind of caught up in that. Mm. I had the impression of people walking around in a daze. No. Huh. By then, I think, I'm sure they were at first. But three months later, no, they were repairing things, planting gardens, uh, living together in a big evacuation centers, cooking together, taking care of each other, um, finding out who, you know, looking for relatives looking for their lost dogs, um, finding each other and being so excited to see that someone, you know, some neighbor who might have been in, in a different center was alive. You know, there was, it, it, ah. it was. So do you think um, 
there was more, I almost want to say waves of, of euphoria and sadness to follow. I mean, do you think that they couldn't, that couldn't have been the end of the grieving, obviously. No, no. And, um, in September when I went back, a force seven typhoon hit. That's a pretty good sized typhoon. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Mm. And they usually go kind of towards the Philippines or up the East coast. This one came right up through Tohoku as if, as if mesmerized by the erased towns. And it just followed the coast almost all the way up. And it ruined everything that they had done in the previous two months, all the winter. So, you know, the farmers were planting winter crops so they would have something to eat. I mean, you have to realize they, they had no money. They had no no transportation. They had no way to make a living, no income. I mean, if they had saved some money, they could get that. So all the gardens were flooded. The, m- many of the temporary houses themselves were flooded, and they had to be evacuated from there and put back into school gyms again while they, you know, got rid of that water. And it it was really depressing. Mm. People were then, elderly couples were committing suicide um, because they thought that, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't out of despair as much as, I mean, of course that was part of it, but also a sense of making room for the younger people. If there wasn't going to be enough food, enough space, you know, uh, enough living quarters, then they would make room for the younger people. You know, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, after the bombs, um, survivors were ostracized. Yes. Right? Is there any of that? There is down by Fukushima, Daiichi. You know, from Sendai North, those towns were were just wiped out by water. Um, The areas around Fukushima, Daiichi, were safe from the wave for the most part, but they're so thoroughly drenched in radiation that people were evacuated from there. So those people are just, you know, they are ostracized. They won't probably marry. Oh, my God. They won't have children. Specifically them, not survivors of the tsunami, but those who are considered to be irradiated or contaminated. yeah. You um, you mentioned radiation a, a little while back as something you were concerned about. How close to the Fukushima Daiichi plant, that is, the nuclear plant where the meltdowns occurred and the radiation was released, how close did you get? Um, not not too close. But you, <laughs> Maybe uh, you had a radiation sensor on your car dashboard? Yeah, uh, yeah Abe-san had, had one. Yeah. Your driver. Mm-hmm. So that you guys could watch the radiation levels go up and down as you drove around. Yeah, yeah, and we tested, like, and the thing about the airborne radiation is that when the wind, because it happened in spring, and so the winds were, you know, changed all the time. And when they blew to the west, the radiation particles hit the mountains and then just dropped down. So even where Avesan lived, which is way, way, way up in the mountains, the radiation there was just as heavy as it was down in, Ishinomaki on the water. So you had to decide, you know, that you would go into this zone. I mean, not the, not the no man's zone immediately yeah, yeah, around the yeah, plant, but, no. but but in the vicinity. Well, no, I was a hundred. For the most part, I was a hundred miles away or more. Well, your meter was ticking at some points, right? Yeah, it was ticking. And you were eating things that you knew probably were 
irradiated. Yeah, you know. we, we were, Abhisan especially was really careful. He cooked for us at his house. Right. And um, so we bought vegetables that were grown in Hokkaido, which is farther north. So your exposure levels Less. probably weren't that bad. Yeah, I don't is think what you're so. saying. Oh, yeah. okay. Good. And, and I, I didn't want to expose Nikki, who's 26, to that. She's a young woman, you know. Mm-hmm. Might want to have a family. Oh, you would have considered getting closer <laughs> with your journalistic I w- instincts. I would have, yeah. <laughs> I would, you know, because some of the animal rescue people were going in, and I was, you know, everyone said if you just go in for an hour or so, you, you know, you'd be, you're okay. But, and I would have done that, but I, Nikki, kind of looked a little funny. And Nikki I, was your driver at that point. No, my interpreter. Transl- oh, interpreter Trans- at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, you said animal rescuers. You tell among the many, you know, terrible stories you tell uh, the fact that people had to to flee the area around Fukushima Daiichi so quickly that they had to leave their animals behind, their pets and their livestock. Yeah, well, and they weren't told that they were just said, oh, you know, leave quickly. They they expected to go back that night. You know, they didn't really know what. Was so happening. they would leave the family dog. Uh, yeah, well, tied they didn't even have a chance. They didn't right. have an option. Right. Yeah. And so all those animals were left there, and then they were told they couldn't go back. Yeah. And so people took it upon themselves. Right. The gorillas. Gorilla <laughs> animal, animal rescue people. W- who were they? It was a really interesting variety of people. The, you know, one of the main people was a woman who has an animal rescue place anyway and has for years. I knew about her, you know, from previous visits. Um, but she went with um, a man who's the bureau chief in Tokyo for The Economist, who's a friend, and they rescued a lot of horses. And then there were these especially young women who went in. One of them I met in Tokyo had never even had a pet in her life. She didn't really know anything about animals, but a friend of her said, oh, you know, we've got to go do something. You can't leave these animals there. And so she just jumped in the car and they went into, you know, way into the no-go zone and brought dog food and water and and just she said it was just amazing none of the dogs were afraid of us they didn't try to bite us they just came with us and um they took them to um some shelters that were there was one outside of Sendai that I visited it was really great really beautiful care for the animals mm-hmm. and like the people well, people were trying to find each other photographs of the living and the dead were made and posted so that you could find people. And then they did the same with dogs and horses and, well, probably other animals too. Hmm. You're an animal lover. Uh, Yes. Could you tell? (laughs) (laughs) I know enough about you. (laughs) Um, So I'm sure it was painful to hear about how many were left behind and how many did starve to death over that time. Um. You said you didn't do a lot of crying during that first trip, but did the weight of that bear down on you later of what you'd seen? Yeah, I think it weighs down on me still. It hasn't made me want to cry. They weren't crying, so so why should I? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was just no sentimentality. I mean, there was pain, but not neurotic suffering, you know. As the Buddhists say, pain is real, suffering's optional. You are a Buddhist, right? Or you try yeah, to be? Yeah, kind of lousy one. <laughs> <laughs> you write uh, that the aesthetic ideal in old Japan was perishability and desolation, sabireru, and I'm probably saying that wrong. 
Simplicity led to a sense of beauty measured out in transience and absences, not a machine regularity. To zigzag or make obscure the human passage through gardens was prized. Its purpose in essence, however meager, was to suggest rather than declare. Impermanence ruled aesthetic choices and became an indelible sensibility. On his long walking journeys, and you're about to name a famous Japanese poet, though accompanied by friends, Basho entered loneliness and thrived there. Is that an aesthetic you would like for your own? <laughs> I hope it is partly my own. You know, I haven't totally enacted it in terms of uh, architecture, although I live off the grid. I live very simply. Um, On an island. Yeah, no, not there, in Wyoming. Oh, in Wyoming. Half oh, yeah. Of the year. Yeah, well, many people listening to this will know you from your writings about Wyoming. Yeah. I will always picture you in Wyoming, wherever oh, you are. Oh, so will I. <laughs> <laughs> this other thing is temporary. Uh-huh. But, um, but I try to embrace those ideas every day in everything I do. I'm curious about your Buddhist leanings and this idea of perishability and impermanence and writing. Writing can be a way of trying to immortalize yourself or trying to put a stamp on the world, you know, trying to carve your name into the bark of reality or something. Yeah, but I don't think you about don't, it that way. No? How do you think about it? Well, just, you know, um, as one poet, Bill Stafford, who, who I knew, who I drove around Wyoming once, he said, you know, a, a, po- a poem is an emergency of the spirit. And that's how I feel about writing. You know, you write something down when you have to. You are communicating. It's no different than, you know, breaking into song. Um, and that's why I do it, because mm. that's, you know, what I was... It's what I'm able to... I was going to say what I was given to do, but then who's the giver? <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, it's what I can do. It's, mm. you know, what I do better than a lot of other things. And so that's how I express myself. But it's not an attempt to to arrest time. No, I try to... To grip um, something firmer. I think of it as being flowing. I'd say your prose does flow. It really is, at least in this book and some others that I've read of yours, it's relentlessly forward-moving. Yeah. <laughs> like the trip you took. Yeah. But that's sort of how I feel most of the time, too. Yeah? Yeah. And that gets us back to the wave, <laughs> which is time also, right? Yeah. The tsunami, the wave. Um, maybe it's a good time to have you read about that dang wave. This is um, the epilogue to your book. After these journeys to Japan uh, in the tsunami zone, you wrote this epilogue. How long after all of that? I wrote it when I was still there. Oh, you did? Oh. I wrote it when I was leaving Tohoku. Um, For the final quite, time? Yes. December of 2011? Yeah. Hmm. I, I think I was on the train to Tokyo and then on the train to Narita. And I, I didn't want to leave. So I was feeling lonely. All human lives are lonely journeys. When the moon shines on worried water, what Buddhists call a sudden path becomes clear. We don't think, we just take it, no matter where it leads. 
We are fearful and fearless at the same time. The body moves, the boat lifts up and over the double wave front and lunges down into trough after trough. We keep going despite the urgent desire to return to those we love, to what we know. Snow comes in fat flakes. We experience hot and cold simultaneously. Time has vanished. We can't see. At intervals, we are terrified, angry, bewildered. We wonder if we'll fall through the hull of the boat or sink to the bottom of the sea. Nothing feels solid. We want to grasp at something, but it's too late. Our hands are cold. We keep stepping into wild places. The boat nods, lunges, and rocks from side to side. The body is pushed and pulled. Water pours in orifices, shoots through scuppers, and we know that it's fruitless to maintain security because form is empty, which means there are no walls. Even underwater, our eyes have opened wide. Everything is possible. The ways out and the ways in are both open doors. For two days and two nights, we rock and roll in nothingness, in no man's ocean between sets of waves. Will there be another tsunami? How can anyone know? We wait. Our former sense of time was driven by desire. Now we have none, which is freedom. We aren't even fleeting. We're completely absorbed. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Nothing about those words is nihilistic. Quite the opposite. When there's talk about emptiness, which is the same thing as form, it means nothingness in the sense that there are no preoccupations, no expectations, no versions of this and that, no prejudice, no bias, no denials, no delusions. Seen this way, the void includes everything. It sounds like it was written by a very wise person. <laughs> Couldn't have been me then. <laughs> Well, the thing I've really liked about your writing over the years is that while it's full of finely observed nature writing, uh, narration, and a lot of moments of reflection like that one, I also sense a, something of a struggle going on in your writing, a personal struggle. But but that's what gives it that sort of special quality is that I, I sense you wrestling with these concepts and wrestling with your own place amongst these ideas. Yeah. Well, isn't everybody. <laughs> isn't everybody, indeed. Although maybe the tendency for some people when they write about them is to, t to sound very authoritative. Yeah, well, we know that. We know <laughs> what a sham that is. <laughs> you have a quote um, from the, the English writer uh, John Berger. Uh, and again, we get back to Buddhistic ideas. Desire is inconceivable without a wound. <laughs> I found myself wondering, is that kind of writing possible without a wound? kind of writing you do? I don't know, because I've got a few wounds. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't everybody? <laughs> I'm not trying to single you out, girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I think that's, you know, where um, compassion comes from is that, you know, everybody has an experience of this and that. And, but you can take the this or that and 
say, oh, if I felt this or that in that situation, then now I can understand how that person in that situation over there might feel. And that's how we create empathy. I mean, you have to want to be empathetic. It's, you know, you're not the only person who's gone through things. So, you know, there's wounds every day, but there's also healing over the wounds. It's always healing and there's always scars and they're always being torn off and then it's fresh flesh that gets wounded again and, you know, it's ongoing. Mm. What is bardo? Bardo is a Sanskrit word that means the place between. So in um, sort of tantric Buddhism, it means the place between each breath, which is a death. It means the place of uncertainty when all of the um, reference points disappear, and even though you might struggle to find one, they're simply not there. And so you have to just swim. You have to tread water. Um, I think of Kikuchi-san as being in the bardo for five hours. The, the man you call the swimmer. Yeah, yeah, not quite knowing what's happened to him, where mm. he is, and if mm. he's going to be rescued. But, it, you know, in everyday life, there's bardo experiences all the time. And um, one teacher said, well, um, every instant is birth, every instant in death it's the rebirth is the continuity of it. You, you uh, in your acknowledgments, uh, say at one point, in memory of the early years living in the household of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, whose teachings on the bardo at the 1971 Allens Park Seminar instruct me still. <laughs> what did he teach, if it can be said? <laughs> well, you talk, it was a week-long seminar. Yeah. Can you boil it down to about 30 seconds? Um, He taught just what I told you. (laughs) Those were his words. Um, Yeah, it was was quite complex, and I can't boil them down. But Mm. it is about dealing with the void, dealing with uncertainty, dealing with impermanence, um, understanding emptiness as being a generative force, that as opposed to being in nothingness, Sartre's great book, um, this is sort of existence, compassion and emptiness, mm. uh, sort of um, that it becomes a kind of fuel, uh, a manured ground from which things can grow. It's not uh, a lack of something, but it's a place where life can rise again. Mm. Mm. I think I'd love you to read another wave passage. Okay. (laughs) The ocean holds streams of stories. The wave came to carry them, empty them of meaning. The power of the water pulling back, burying the ocean floor, took all the loose ends, the beginnings and endings, and unraveled them, recomposing stories so they had no familiar shapes. Some were all endings with no middles, Others were so shapeless there was no way to tell how they had started or if they would end. The wave was center and fringe at once, a totality, both destructive and beautiful. Oceans of stories were taken up by it. Roof beams and window frames were whittled back into the trees from which they came. The furrowed ocean cleaved land 
and knifed the wavering ribbons of each human and animal story. It's funny, the, the, um, the words that echoed through my head sometimes when I was reading you in your repeated descriptions of the tsunami, mm-hmm. the words were, the makers rage to order words of the sea. <laughs> you know that one well, yeah. right? I know you do. Yeah. Because you're a big Wallace Stevens fan. Yes, I am. Do you have that in you? Rage? To order words of the sea? <laughs> Probably. I must, or why would I write? <laughs> and and, 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 the, and the, the, the book has a wave-like structure because you return again and again, right? Yeah, it's, or else some people might say it's just been bloody redundant. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've given yourself a good excuse for being yeah, redundant. Exactly, yeah. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> but the, the whole idea of facing the wave, while you were there in the time afterwards, you must have tried to picture it many, many times, the tsunami. Yeah. Did you dream about it? Oh yeah. Do you a still? Lot. Do you still? Less and less. I'm I'm under other kinds of natural disasters now. <laughs> no, but I did dream about it a lot. Yeah, waves coming in, and I I incorporated some dreams in the book too. Oh yeah, and then when I went home, of course we had all watched those horrible videos. When I went home, I watched them again because. Now I even, as horrible as this sounds, knew some of the people in those videos who didn't make it, especially on the Sendai plane. Or, I mean, I knew of them. They were relatives of the people Mm. who had survived Mm. because they would show me, oh, you know, see that car where it's just going over the bridge? That was my uh, my aunt and uncle. Mm. And uh, so to watch them again after being there was... Uh, almost unbearable, but I just thought I have to keep putting myself there. I can't gloss over it. I have to experience it as much as I can. And so I looked at them over and over. What is the image that comes to mind when I say tsunami now? Um, I always think of it as black water. Coming very, very fast. You know, we're so used to looking at the ocean and it has a certain, you know, big swells rocking. And even as the wind pushes the water so that they become waves, there's a sort of placidness to it. And as I understood it, these waves came tremendously fast, which is a kind of horror. It's like a, you know, a train coming at you or something, just a feeling of helplessness and and I don't see them as being blue or green or anything life-giving but sort of black and like night coming at you Hmm. so the wave in one sense is death you know Mm -hmm. we're gonna have to face that wave all of us if we haven't already right does contemplating it this much change your relationship to it no, I don't think so because I have faced death, literally. With the lightning yeah. strike, yeah, that so, nearly killed you. But I also see it as facing li- living after loss or during, in the midst of loss. That I mean, oceans are, well, before climate change, we're, we're life giving, that are life giving. And um, so if you can 
think of the wave as being blue and full of fish and kelp and 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 life and foam and regeneration. I mean, it's not necessarily a dark thing to face the wave. It's you know, life and death are the, it's the same coin. It depends which way you flip it that moment. But it's um, it's full of energy. Hmm. I mean, I, I thought of the the charnel ground would, um, as also being the dance ground. And, you know, it is astonishing to uh, drive up that coast and see the ocean look just the way the ocean looks out here. It's just a beautiful blue thing. And you just can't believe that it was something else. So, mm. Yeah, the wave was dark, or you see it as dark. You were nearly killed by something very bright. <laughs> yes, but I don't remember. It, <laughs> My funny. box of amnesia is black. The the whole uh, period around the lightning bolt is Yeah, I don't is, remember is being blank. hit. I don't remember right. it probably before or after. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is like a box of a black box in my it's, brain. It's funny. I even though I knew all about that story, I'd completely forgotten it when I was reading facing the wave, that you yourself had kind of faced a, a wave. Yeah. Know? Although I didn't, you know, that wasn't... I know. It's not comparable I, in scale. No, right? and, but uh, and also I didn't really... Uh, that wasn't why I went to Japan. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. I don't okay. like, carry these things right. around. And right. Stuff happens. And... Right. Right. Well, Gretel, really, thank you so much. It was really great talking to you. Thank you. Gretel Ehrlich's latest book is Facing the Wave, A Journey in the Wake of the Tsunami. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Your host here, Robert Polly, bidding you goodbye for one week. I'll be back next Sunday at noon, and it will be in the midst of KUSP's Spring Pledge Drive. So do tune in then and give us a hand, okay? In the meantime, you can check us out online at 7thAvenueProject.com. ¶¶